Oh, okay, let's see if we can have a, let's see if we can have a run at this a little bit. Um, this is a little bit of an odd morning. Normally on a feast day morning, uh, normally have a, on a feast day morning, we, you know, we don't have Bible study, and then we said we would, and then, I don't know how we did it, but we finished, you know, at normal time, and we communed, we used everything that was on the altar, so it was a big service. I mean, we didn't, you know, we had, I think, ten hosts left, which, by the way, is not a criticism of the altar guild. That's the perfect compliment. The altar guild was perfect this morning. We, we, ate, we ate every host that was on the altar, so that was great. We weren't short. We didn't have to break them. We were good. So, um, you, know, you know, the guys are around with the movie things. It's, it's distracting. I know it is uh, for us and for you. We just need to kind of make the best of it. It's a, you always try to figure out what's the most helpful things to do. You talk to people, you know, uh, you listen to people who have more experience than you do, and, you know, it's like, as I've said, it's like spanking your kids. You know, if you say you'll never spank your kids, you probably spank just enough. And, you know, if you say you'll never shoot a picture in your sanctuary, you'll probably shoot just enough pictures. So, yeah, you're not laughing about kids or pictures. So I just take that, <laughs> take that as you, you, probably, you live in a state where it's now outlawed. So, okay, I get that. I get that. Okay. So um, they're probably going to pop in with a camera. They may even rearrange it so they can get just the shot of you they want. So, uh, you know, but yeah, such is life. Everything's a bonus today because it's a feast day. Transfiguration is really quite, quite a remarkable uh, Quite a remarkable text, uh, what's happening there. Uh, so, all right, let's pray and let's go. Almighty God, merciful Father, who created and completed all things, on this day when the work of our calling begins anew, we beg you, create its beginning, direct its continuance, and bless its end, that all our doings may be preserved from sin, our life sanctified, and our work this day well-pleasing to you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Uh, you know, I actually didn't know if you were going to show up today. You know, I, I have stuff, I had stuff prepared along the normal, uh, the normal deal, that, but I didn't know if you were actually going to turn out today. I didn't, if we said, you know, we're just going to do what we can, and I really thought we'd only have about 15 minutes. So, uh, we've got more, but actually I have something I want to chatter with you about, uh, which fits in with the community stuff. Now, try to remember, next week, just 4 o'clock, okay? But if you come at 3, um, we can poke around a little bit and chat and kind of look things over and... and dream of it maybe and uh, see what might happen. But I want to I take a small diversion uh, still within the notion of community. But I've done this now in a couple of venues and uh, it's going to be you know, widely talked about enough that I actually want to do a little bit with this group because even people whom I've known well uh, over my time here have questioned me thoroughly about this. But um, I think the time is right and I think we're about to go forward. We still want to chat with the elders about this. We've, we've broached it a couple of times, but there's more to do in that group. Um, but basically, uh, you know, I've talked a little bit about pushing the, the age for First Communion way, way, way down. Uh, and probably that's going to happen for the first time this summer. I'm telling you this because uh, it's a, we're about to send registration out for the school. It affects the school. It affects what we do with kids in the future. It affects our summer. And I want to try to give you some rationale for that. In the midst of talking about community. Um, let's see, I don't know where to start. Let's start logistically. Uh, next year, uh, confirmation will return to the school and it will be taught by the pastors and the vicars. We haven't quite figured out what it'll look like, uh, but it may look like, oh, well, at the very least, it will look like the pastors and the vicars and some other staff people maybe uh, Carla Waterman might help a bit. We're not quite sure. We, we have deaconess interns if we have some that are particularly good. 
but it'll, it'll go in the place of their morning religion class. Um, so, you know, that'll give us a little bit of, 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 of time with those kids. Um, it may even look like, for those kids, it may even look like morning prayer every morning in the sanctuary for 7th and 8th graders. We're not quite sure. We don't know how much we can pull off. Uh, but really, it wouldn't kill uh, those kids. Frankly, it wouldn't kill us either to start in the sanctuary with morning prayer. It would be short enough that it would try to inculcate the habit of daily devotions in them. And over the course of the school year, they'd get a pretty good run through the Psalms, and uh, we'd get some time with them in smaller, in smaller groups. So their first, you know, their first hour might look like um, 15 minutes. I don't know how long periods are going to be. There's a little bit of juggling going on. It might look like 15 minutes of, of morning prayer in here and 30 minutes of instruction. And we can easily, it'll be far more than what we're doing now, I think. So I think that'll, that'll be OK. Um, that leads into the question of what we're going to do with uh, non-day school 7th and 8th graders. And the answer is, we're going to try to uh, do all of their confirmation in the summer. They'll receive uh, the same or more hours uh, than they do now, and they'll receive it from the pastors, but largely in smaller venues. Um, I know the kids play baseball, I know they travel, I know they go to camp, I know summers are busy. But frankly, they're not as busy as Wednesday nights. And um, one of the things that we realize with families is they don't spend probably enough time together. And the more nights people are here, the more nights they're not home. You know, if they're not here, we can't, you know, we can't force people to be home together. And frankly, we've even talked about other things like having a Wednesday evening service year-round. Uh, somebody remind me, two vicars is the next thing I need to say. I need to come back to two vicars, okay? So um, what we'll do is, uh, if any of you have been through the new members course, you know that uh, there's, a, there's a body of knowledge we want to do, but it doesn't necessarily need to be sequential. For example, we follow the order of the liturgy rather than the order of the catechism. It all washes out because the pastors know where they want to go and they know how the things are connected, and so they try to put everything together and make it work. Um, so what I think we're going to try to do is uh, teach different units or pods uh, repeatedly over the course of several weeks so that, you know, unless a kid goes to Europe for, you know, 12 weeks, there should be ample opportunity for them to come receive instruction. Uh, and they can come, you know, when they want, and it'll be a bit more individualized. Uh, the first thing to worry about there is the numbers, but I think the numbers may solve themselves a bit because we've already cut the task in half by going back into the school. Okay, uh, And just by the by, the two vicars thing, um, just the budget's going to come up pretty soon, and we've been pushing and pulling on this. But uh, one of the interesting things that the seminaries and, and folks know about is the colleges and seminaries and people in the Senate know is how supportive we've been of interns and how many people have been through here and how it works. One of the struggles now is deaconesses are sort of on the rise. One of the struggles for the seminaries is to place vicars or pastors in training who have wives who are training to be deaconesses. Uh, now we're, we at St. John are a very likely suspect because basically we pay a vicar the princely sum of $14,400 to be here for the year. Yeah. They are the migrant workers of the Lutheran Church. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we give them about $14,000 for being here. 
Uh, but, but we do, and this is a generosity. They have a pretty nice place to live and they get health care, which many, many, the seminary health care is not good. Uh, and, you know, many places. My first day in my vicarage, I walked in, and they sort of said, hey, you need to find your place. You're our first vicar, and just kind of get busy with that. So we have, you know, a good possibility. And it's actually cheaper for us because we pay for a vicar, we pay health care of the family, we give them housing, and then we expect his wife to live with him so therefore, we don't have to pay housing twice. And we've already paid the health care for, so for another $14,400, we can get a second set of hands, normally very well trained. The seminary called us and said, um, gosh, we got these people, they're very good. Can you take two vicars and two deaconess interns? Uh, and we said, uh, well, the answer is always yes before it's no. So you always try to say yes. And there'll be some shifting around a little bit in the staff next year. Um, uh, with different interns, net, 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 the, the cost is inconsequential. I bet it's plus or minus $1,000 either way. I don't know if it'll be long or short. But next year, it looks like St. John led up with two deaconesses and two vicars. So in one sense, this is kind of helpful in the transitional year because we have more people who have more training uh, in a year when we're changing things up. So just any questions about any of that? There, that was just a big sort of logistical layout. Everybody okay with that? Questions about any of that? What we're doing? You know, we're trying to get better. Yes, please. Um, do, I'm sorry, do, do you see us ever calling a deaconess? Uh, in, a, in a sense, we sort of got one in Carla. In one sense, we sort of have one. She sort of came to us pre-baked, pre you know, as a deaconess. Uh, she has remarkable skills and, you know, teaching experience and a PhD. That's a really rare combination of stuff. Um, so, uh, so the answer is, the answer is partly is yes, we've already done that, and then the future, what the future brings, who knows. I think they're very, very valuable, but I will also say this, I think one of the trouble with deaconesses being accepted in the church is that people don't know what to do with their pastors, and so they often, they can't imagine what they would do with a deaconess let me, let me just sort of give you an example. For me personally, I've probably spent 70% of my time since I've been here on administrative things and 30% of my time here on people care teaching things, okay? So in a way, you know, you should be using me about 90% of the time with people things, about 10% for administrative things, right? So in, in one sense, hear this in the right way, you don't, you don't even know how to use me. So now you bring a deaconess in, and deaconesses even more say, all I want to do is hang out with people and take good care of them. And then you start have this problem, well, the pastors aren't even being used that way. How are we going to use a deaconess that way? So one of the shocks to the system for deaconesses, as I observe it, is they think they're training to be with the sick, to help the poor, to make calls, and they end up running copies, answering the phone, and plunging the toilet, you see? But that's not uncommon for pastors either. In my first call, I was the guy who answered the phone, made the copy. I printed the bulletin every week and wrote it up and plunged the toilet, too. So, I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what... So, see, part of it is... is so, so, this is a bigger question, but yes, and we're thinking it through is the answer. Yes, and let's do better with it. And partly, the really good thing about St. John is, really, over the past few years, there's so many good people, lay people, who have stepped up to do different things that that takes pressure off us because they'll do administrative things and we can do pastoral things. Now, the thing is, with a place as big as St. John, we need way more of those people. We probably have 
you know, 50 or 75, we probably need 150 or 175 lay people who really step in, up and do those kinds of things. Does that make sense? So, yeah, I'm for it. Here's just a little side. I'm just not, I'm probably for deacons as well, which is kind of an interesting thing that the Missouri Senate doesn't do, but is all over Scripture. It's just First Timothy 3, it's just right there. So... Right, yeah. Right. 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 Well said. I hadn't even thought of it in that. Her question was, we go next door, we have a lot of space, we have a senior care center, we do new things. The obvious thing is we need more sets of trained hands. Deaconesses are good possibilities for that. And this is, takes us down a whole other path. But one of, the, one of the wise things we should probably do, do if we try to do that is write some grants that would sort of seed that for the first couple of years and kind of get people into place so that we can you know, ease that. But yes, it is, it is a possibility. Well, thanks for asking. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. She said more members, more broken hearts, more problems, more things to do. Here's the thing. That, that's brilliantly said, and if by the time I get done here, you know, whenever that happens to be, if pastors can be doing pastoral things and you can be doing your things, and those, you know, obviously you're the sort of person who should be helping people with broken hearts as well. You're not, you know, it's just not just us. We don't sort of pay us to be with broken-hearted people, you know. It can be you too. So, you know, all things by extension as we get better and better, okay? Did you have a question too, somebody? Did I? Okay. The, it, what, we, what kind of work we would ask them to do? Well, one thing, and this is, now you'll hold me to this if I say this, but one of the things I would like to do, what I'd love to do is have them pull up and say, we want to visit every, every family in this congregation this year. It'd be very interesting. And here's the thing where you have problems. You have, uh, it's a different world. I get slightly nervous making a call. In fact, I don't do it on a single mom, for example, or a single woman at home. Single women, deaconesses, get slightly nervous making calls on single men at home, right? You have, this, you have all kinds of new issues that you didn't used to have. Um, we're going to have a time when we have actually people who are married who can go in twos, so we don't have to worry about them. We don't have to worry about other people, so we have sort of this opportunity in front of us. But here's the problem with us. Our eyes are always bigger than our stomach. I've told you about my grandmother at Bishop's Cafeteria. You can take whatever you want as long as you eat it, yeah? Which is exactly the same as having two vicars. You know, what'll, our problem is that we won't use them enough. Our problem is, is we'll dream up 14 new things to do, you know, and won't be able to do it. And that's, that's chronically a problem with us, that we want to do more than we have time or ability for, or hands, okay? Now, the, tick, the more ticklish point may be, um, although I hope not. I mean, I hope not after all these years. Let me give you, let me give you an, an example. I talked to you about... Um, consuming the elements at the altar. I probably talked in Bible study in different venues about that for four or five years. Then a professor came from the seminary, um, gave a lecture, and then he astonishingly, with an astonished look on his face, said to the group, well, of course you consume the elements at the altar, don't you? Because that's the best practice. And then the next week I got ten letters about why we don't, it was more like, why hadn't I ever thought to consume the elements? And I had to get busy with that. And then it was easy to say, okay, we'll do that now. In the same way, um, 
you know, over the past few years, we've been talking a lot about pushing the age of confirmation down. Um, and I have a very practical reason for it. I have two, at least two very practical reasons. Well, let me say my default. You know, despite the reputation of the Missouri Senate for close communion, and despite the communion statement, my default, what I'm trying to do is get the body and blood of Jesus into every last person in the entire world worthily. And of course, everything hangs on the last word. But in a very practical way, I mean, if you're going to give six, I mean, by state law, if you're going to give, I'm not making a policy statement here, I'm just asking the question. If if state laws are considered that vaccinate, that mandatorily vaccinate sixth grade girls against STDs, okay, and cervical cancer. Shouldn't at least we be, if that's the, I'm only using that to say this, if that's the world in which we live, shouldn't we be, you know, inoculating our kids with the body and blood of Jesus for all the things that they run into in a very young age? I'm sort of putting the question to you in that way. Or, I'll put it to you in a different way, wouldn't the body and blood of Jesus do your kids an awful lot of good? Okay. Now, normally the reaction to such a thing is, well, you know, it's always been the seventh and eighth grade. And my reaction to that is, which is precisely the time we used to take them out of school and send them to work in a factory 14 hours a day, seven days a week, or into the fields. We don't have a rationale for why we do it in seventh and eighth grade. I know this will frighten you about Lutherans, but it's just the way it's always been done. (laughs) Okay. So now, if we can just just step back from that, while being respectful of our elders, just step back from that and say, you know, what, uh, how, you know, what do we do now? It seems to be my, I always sort of check the wince level on people here, um, which is, you know, what I could say with it before people go, so it seems to be first or second grade. It seems to be first or second grade. Now, some of you will say, well, what sort of a faith is that? And I would answer you, uh, unlike baptism, the stricture, the rubric, uh, the word of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11 is that people need to know that they're sinners and repent, and that people need to know that this supper is different from supper at home. You can boil it down to this. You can't, you're unworthy if you don't know or you don't care. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 says. 1 Corinthians 11 starts by saying, you people don't know the difference between eating at home and eating in the church. That's basically what he says. And then he says, you need to discern the difference. The difference is, one is you know, meat and potatoes. The other is the body and blood of Jesus that hung on the cross. And he says, if you don't discern the difference, that is, if you can't verbally say, this is different than what we do at home, then you ought not to come. So here's a sufficient faith. And I'll just quote Luther, who he said, any seven-year-old child knows what the church is, where God gathers his gifts, gathers his people to give out his gifts. Ask any seven-year-old child, he'll tell you what the church is. Okay? I mean, that's Luther. So we sort of, this is what we'd be looking for. We'd be looking for children who know that they're sinners and who know that Jesus forgives them. And then more specifically, they know that when they come to the altar, 
It's the body and blood of Jesus that's put into them for the forgiveness of sins. So that act, the physical act of taking a tangible thing from the altar and putting it on their lips, forgives them. Now, you'll say to me, um, yes, and there's so much more. And even if you read the bulletin, there is so much more. You know, in there I wrote, it forgives sins. It binds us to Christ. It binds us to the Holy Trinity. It binds us to each other. It propels us out into the world. Will every kid need to know all that before they come? Not the way you know it. They'll need to know it in an age-appropriate way. But real honestly, all of that's not in the text. That's drawn out of the text. That's theological maturity. But there's none of us who come there judged on our theological maturity. We all come because we need to be forgiven. That's why we come. So the question is, how far can you sort of push that down and not do harm to kids? That's what we need to think about. Um, now, the next question that has come is, well, you know, what are you going to do, just sort of cut them loose in first grade? No, what I think will happen, as opposed to seventh and eighth graders who primarily don't want to be with their parents, or at least they're learning that they don't want to be with their parents, uh, summer for them will look very much like it looks now, uh, probably smaller groups and more face time with the pastors, but it'll look like smaller groups. But if you have a child, let's say between first grade and seventh grade, and you want your child to commune, it will be your responsibility, as the catechism says, as the, as, the, as the head of the household teaches their children. It'll be your responsibility to bring the child and probably stay with the child. I, I envision that parents would stay, and so there's this thing of both teaching kids and teaching parents, and then parents teaching kids and then coming back. And it probably needs to be a sequential thing that's repeated over the years. That is, don't presume that if you have a first grader, you'd bring your first grader and then they'd commute and that would be the end. We haven't quite figured it out, but we should just presume that they're going to be back every summer for a tune-up in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Supper, in the Holy Spirit, too. A tune-up for the Holy Supper. We should just presume that that will happen. So it's not as if, we're not, here's what we're not doing. We're not taking the present program and just pushing it down to first grade and having a free-for-all. We're not doing that. What we are doing is saying there are some parents who are adamant here that the Holy Supper will help their kids, and biblically speaking, they're right, okay? Now, it hasn't been our practice, so how do we pastorally, you know, and respecting the head of families, allow that practice to begin and flourish, and how do we as pastors not uh, simply start communicating kids and then turn our backs on them? Because what we see is the opportunity to build relationships with kids from a very young age. Uh, so that's kind of what we're thinking about. Now, I suspect that that's made at least some of you uncomfortable, and I'd be very willing to sort of, if you have questions about that, you want to chat that over a little bit. Karen, this is why the Lord has put you in this place at this time. Is your last prayer at night. You should say, and please don't let Bruzek get away with nothing. <laughs> Amen. Is that what it is? Yes, that was that was that was such a friendly way. That was such a, yes, that was such a friendly way you raised. It was only it was only to about three quarters height, which is hard, you could hardly and no one could take offense at such a thing. So what's the question? Oh, that that was my intent. Right. 
Right. But um, my question is that the Roman Church has traditionally communed children at around age seven. And we have, um, in the Lutheran Church, um, brought with us a lot of the traditions of the Roman Church. But right. there must have been some reason why, long ago and far away, it was decided that young children should not be receiving the sacrament at I do not know the answer to that, and I haven't been able to find it. Sometimes Lutherans are inscrutable, uh, and sometimes they just do the opposite than the Catholics do. We had a very interesting conversation with somebody over the age of 60 this week who said, I was taught to be a good Lutheran by hating everything that was Roman Catholic. <laughs> and I, I, I thought to myself, you know, yeah, that is just the strangest way to grow, to grow up. It's the strangest way to confess Christ. What do you believe about Jesus? I know that I hate them. <laughs> so here's the thing. If you can find that, you're, you're, you're kind of connected. You know, you're kind of connected with people. If you can find that answer, I would love to have it. Uh, but partly, we always have to remember that Lutherans are the new kids on the block. I and mean, we've only been around for, you know, 500 years, which in the church is like, you know, that's like being three years old. So we just have to be, we have to be a little careful. I don't know the answer, and I only have conflicting answers. Um, but if you do, I'll take it. Yes, doctor. You come from that Roman church. Yes, and look how you turned out. I know, yeah, right? Um, he said. He said he thinks we'd be haven't haven't been through this. We we'd be surprised by the spiritual maturity of kids. I think too. You know, it may be that we only have ten kids who do this. Um, I would have done this with my own kids, but it would have looked like special pleading. You know, if I had just if I just brought my own kids, it would have been sort of a one off. And I, over the course of the years with my kids, were between first and seventh seventh grade. There was just too much other stuff going on. But there's nothing I would have rather done than, than commune my own kids. Interestingly, we've had both um, Catholic families who've come to join us and then also other Lutheran families where kids have, in fact, communed early. And in every case, um, we've sat down with them and examined them in sort of an age-appropriate way, and then we've continued to commune them. Now, one of the problems is, is that they often have siblings who are younger. So you have a sibling who started communing at third or fourth grade, and then the next one up is at third or fourth grade, and now we're not communing that, and what's the, you know, what sort of a church is that? It can't be fair to me. And here's the other thing. I don't expect um, somebody's going to have to push for this in a family. Either a parent or a kid are going to have to push for it. And we're going to be much more open to kids pushing for it. If parents are pushing their kids into it, that's kind of a, a warning sign for us. But if kids are... I mean, I have some kids who are in fourth, fifth, sixth grade who are just indignant about the fact they can't commune here. And they just let me know it. I mean, they just don't understand why they can't commune. I should let you talk to them. Because I'm sort of defenseless. I mean, they sort of say, how come I can't have the body and blood of Jesus to forgive me? I normally say, no, you're just a perfect little child who really has no need of forgiveness. That's why I never talk to your parents. That's what I'm saying. No, I mean, I don't, but you're sort of, you know, you're sort of defenseless against that. So at least I feel defenseless. 
There's another question here. Somebody. Yes, Chris. Right, yeah. Good. Well, you, yeah, you have, you have you demure boys, and they pay attention in school, too, and they get stuff over here, so they come home, and so being in the school kind of is an added bonus. Um, of, that's one added bonus. They get it a little bit earlier. We'll see what happens. Well, we'll see if they pick up their room once it starts, okay? That would be the... There'll be some metrics here, for, I'm sure, for how we measure the effectiveness of what the Lord is getting done at the altar. All right, anything, anything else? What, what, yes, Karen? Um, then confirmation would still take place in seventh and eighth grade? Well, here's an interesting thing. That's a very good question, too, and that's been asked a couple of times over the past couple of days. Will confirmation still take place in seventh and eighth grade? When I came, you know, confirmation had been split from first communion. You commune after your seventh grade year, and you have confirmation after your eighth grade year. And that's becoming a more common phenomenon. And I, I don't really know how I how I think about that or feel about that. Um, it's a thing that I didn't change. I sort of inherited and just went with it. Um, I always have a lot of fear and trepidation that kids aren't ready to go in seventh grade because we haven't looked them in the eye enough. Um, but let me, let me see if I then can, let me see if I can answer your question by defining the difference between confirmation and first communion. First communion uh, means you come to your come to your pastor, you confess your sins, um, or you know that your sins need to be confessed. Although I will just say, by the by, probably what we will do, I'm just telling you, I'm trying to get everything on the table, we probably will take kids through private confession. But here's the thing, we probably won't let them confess anything specific. Uh, maybe for some years. Because what we want them to do is get them... Um, let them have the feel of that and not have their, their think their pastor has their thumb on them, but yet have it be an open, you know, that anybody 30 years old and older has never heard of private absolution in the, in the Lutheran church. It's just a great sadness. It's just something, it's another thing we just don't have use of. But if we could get, if we could at least get kids to understand that when they've got sins they can't shake, you know, when something has happened that they just can't get over, or that nobody else will love them. Sometimes kids do things and parents turn them out. That the church is there, still there to love them, and frankly, Christ is still there. That's a, that's a good use of that. So we will, um, what we will do is probably distinguish First Communion from confirmation will be, in some sense, an intense period of teaching. Karen, can you hear it like that? So Jesus said, make disciples by baptizing and teaching and that teaching just goes on and on. And at some point, you know, especially if you haven't called us by the seventh grade, we're going to call you. And we're going to say it's time for your kid to get in here and get busy. So we'll probably, talk, we'll probably keep it at the seventh and eighth grade, although I don't, to be honest with you, that, that's a thing I haven't thought all the way through because in some ways, and maybe this is just because that's the grade we do it in, but in some ways, fifth and sixth grade sounds like a way better time to confirm kids or... 10th and 11th grade, or 11th and 12th grade sounds like a way better time, because at, se at, at 7th and 8th grade, all they're doing is making goo-goo eyes at each other all the time. You know, it's just crazy. I offer to arrange dates early in the class, Karen. I have a seating chart, and I say, you know, if anybody needs a prom date or a tournament, I'm the guy, because I know all the names, and I'd be happy to arrange people. I don't get too many takers, but they need to know that I'm there for them, you know. 
<clears throat> yeah, well, nobody does. Nobody raises their own kids the way they would raise other people's kids, Karen. I'd, way, I'd be way better at raising somebody else's kids, okay? So I just, here's the thing. I don't expect a huge reaction out of that. I would, if, if it does, if you do have a reaction to it one way or the other, here's what I'd like you to do is get a hold of me. If you're very positive or very negative about that, I would very much like to talk to you about that because I don't, you know, there may be something we're missing. I don't think so. And also, nothing good happens by force, but frankly, the real push is coming from families who want their kids to commune. And I'm, I can't think of a good reason to say no to them anymore. So. The distinction or the confirmation is that they become voting members of the congregation. Yes, there is that league. There is a, yes, there is. They do become voting members of the congregation. And I do, every year when we confirm them, I always have during that service, I have some moment of fear when I realize that we've just put a two and a half million dollar budget into the hands of 38th graders. And if they all showed up, you know, it could be the end of all of us. You know, I always think that to myself. But yes, they do become voting members. Whether they should be, you know, no place else in the world are you, you can't even make the uh, I can drink or, or I could be sent to Iraq argument at eighth grade. You know, there's, there's a, you know, whether, whether eighth graders should be voting members. That, I think that came in with the, we want kids to know we love them, therefore we'll give them a vote. So suddenly they're voting whether or not the teacher they had last year should have the contract renewed. I, you know, I just, I just don't know, you know. But that's, you know, I don't lie awake at night and worry about, so far they haven't heard us or paid attention. I'm sort of like, you, know, you watch MTV, right? I know you do. So, um, you know, the get out the vote thing, I've got the anti get out the vote thing at the eighth grade. I'm just very quiet about that. <clears throat> you know, do you promise to come to the state three cents and come to all the voters' meetings and vote? <clears throat> they never hear me. <laughs> but you're right, it is one of the things we have to think about. Yes, please. Oh, gosh, we've got to go. Church is starting. I promise you they will. And they'll get it in a smaller venue. They'll probably get it in a group of four or six than a group of 26. I promise you they will, okay? We won't short them on day of school kids. In fact, while it may be condensed, they'll probably get more face time with their pastors than the other kids. So, good point. But we will, I promise, okay? We gotta go. Gee, I didn't know it was this late, sorry. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. Remember, next week at 4 at the Bible Church, we're not going to be here on Saturday or in the morning. Thank you.